You're listening to The Served Up Show, a podcast that features inspiring beverage professionals and topic experts that share their passions through meaningful content. Your hostesses, Bridget Albert, is best known as the Market Fresh Mixologist, an industry mentor with over 25 years of experience. And I'm Julie Milroy, best known for my passion for leading change and helping others grow in their careers. Grab a cocktail and sit back. Let's learn how we can make a positive impact in our industry. Hey all, it's Bridget Albert here. I had the pleasure of sitting down and chatting with Beam Centauri's senior American whiskey brand ambassador, Adam Harris. Adam shared with me his expertise on damn good bourbon, his journey in the beverage industry, and his passion for health and wellness. So grab yourself a Jim Beam highball and enjoy the show. Adam, welcome to Served Up. I'm so happy to have you a guest on the show today. It is so nice to be here. Always great to spend some time with you and catch up. Absolutely. Um, Can you share with our listeners, you know, where are your beginnings in this industry? How did you start? Where are my beginnings in this industry? Uh, Dishwashing is is where it started. Um, In college, I did a little bit of dishwashing and that, believe it or not, uh, solidified a an interest in the hospitality business. Um, you know, having, having people come and dump dishes down by me for <laughs> night after night, I was like, how do I, how do I get on the, the dumper side and not the dumpy side? And I ended up uh, on the floor. And then that took me to various food jobs uh, throughout my college days and then moved up to New York uh, and ended up needing to pay the bills as one does. And so I applied for a restaurant job and got back on the floor for a brief moment before one day, a bartender didn't come to work. And I was probably all of 22, 23 around this time. And uh, the manager asked me if I had ever bartended before. And I said, no, but I know how to drink, or at least I know I like drinking. And he said, well, can you count to four? And I said, yes, I could do that too. And so I hopped behind the bar and never looked back. And I spent, uh, you know, the better part of a decade or I'd say behind the bar in New York City in one way or another, making either fancy cocktails for the time or cracking beers and pouring shots and was able to really explore my, my, my first and truest love in the, in the spirits world, which was bourbon. Um, and, you know, I, I tell the story a lot about how when I graduated college, I decided to do a couple of things. Uh, I would learn how to juggle, uh, play better pool, and drink whiskey. And uh, I learned how to do one thing at the expense of others because I'm still pretty bad at pool and I cannot juggle at all. So <laughs> I noticed one of those things was not, was not getting a job. I didn't mention getting a job after college, but I wanted to do those things that I did mention. And so fast forward back to where we jumped off from, um, I did start exploring the bourbon category because uh, that was just the whiskey style that I gravitated towards um, in my early exploration. And so I was able to kind of really get into more bourbon and, you know, this is, we're talking early 2000s right now, so you can imagine what the category looked like back then. It was only a handful that you were able to, to, to pour regularly or order regularly at most bars, uh, New York or anywhere. And uh, talking exclusively bourbon, that is, not just American whiskey, Tennessee whiskey, et cetera. And so uh, I s- spoke to the, the bourbons that I really enjoyed, which were Maker's Mark and Knob Creek and things like that. And, and it's fun 
how it's lined up just like this because it sounds like I'm, I'm saying it because it's, it's where my paycheck comes from, but I truly fell in love with those brands first. And uh, lo and behold, you know, after a couple of years of, of talking bourbon behind the bar and educating our own staff, taking initiative and doing staff training and things like that on categories of whiskey and focusing on bourbon again, turned out that they needed a Maker's Mark ambassador to New York City. And I had met Bill Samuels a couple of times. It was kind of like having royalty walk into your bar and getting to make a Manhattan for, for the king of Kentucky, you know, or at least the king of Loretto, Kentucky. Uh, was a pretty awesome thing. And so um, when I had the opportunity to, to take a job with Makers, I jumped at it. it. took me all of probably two seconds to, to shake off the surprise and say yes. And then, then there you go. And that was over 15 years ago now. And I never really looked back. I mean, obviously, our hearts, I know your heart is always back behind the bar here and there. And, you know, although I got to say in my mid 40s, my, my knees are happy that I'm not standing up for 18 hours a day anymore, you know, but um, I, I, I love the bars and it's always nice that they're only an arms, an arms distance away, but it's great to come in and talk about what I love talking about truly, which is bourbon. Yeah. And so I guess we'll just set the standard, right? You know how I like to give long answers to short questions. So just let's, get, <laughs> let, let's start that trend right off the bat. Oh, I love it. And I think, you know, you and I share a lot of similarities as far as being behind the bar. I was cocktail serving, which obviously you weren't cocktail serving, but I was cocktail serving and, you know, I had heels on and skirt and I hated it and I wasn't good at it. I couldn't balance a tray and a bartender got sick one night and I said, can I go back there? Can I put pants on and wear my tennis shoes? And they said, yes. And I went back there and I never left. You know, it just yeah. never left. It's like, I always say like our industry is so scrappy, you know, it's either like, and you love it or you mm -hmm. just don't. And once mm -hmm. you've worked behind the bar, it is like you said, like, it's just, that's where your heart stays, whether you're still behind the mahogany or not, you know? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's funny enough, you know, um, the, uh, the day that the bartender didn't show up, she was this attractive uh, Russian ballerina who was mm -hmm. moonlighting to earn money behind the bar. And there was this one guy who I'd seen come in every day and we were about the same age. And I shortly learned that he came in every day because he lived above the bar. And so that particular day that she didn't come to work and I was asked to step in, I remember going down to the bar and I saw this fellow walking up and I was like, all right, I know he drinks gin and tonics. So I'm going to pour him a gin and tonic and I'll have it waiting for him. And I'll start talking to him from there. And he walked up and I had his drink ready. And I said, Hey, how you doing? He said, oh, I'm doing all right. I said, I know I'm not who you would like to be seeing right now, but um, I have a gin and tonic for you. My name's Adam and uh, I'd like to get to know you. Here you go. And that guy was my first regular and became one of my best friends. And I actually just got to see him for the first time in four years at a friend's wedding this past week. Wow. So, that's amazing. Pretty awesome. <laughs> That is pretty awesome. And that all happens, you know, at the bar, we form all relationships, you know, it's so cool. Yeah. And, you know, because you've been, it sounds like in the industry, just about as long as I've been in the industry, I've seen so many changes, you know, yeah. especially as of late. And so what brought you from um, New York to where you are now in Texas? Yeah. So, um, you know, I had a, almost a handful of years under my belt with the Maker's Mark ambassador position, uh, I moved to New York after college in Kansas. I moved there in 1999, uh, right before the right before the turn of the century at the 20 aughts, right? <laughs> so fast forward a few years to 2009, and I had, I had never seen New York as like a long-term proposition for me. I had thought I would move somewhere else. I, I knew that I, I knew New York just wasn't going to be my forever home, you know? And 
the opportunity to go back to Texas via a town that I wanted to live in, which is Austin, Texas, where so many people want to live now, if you check the, the population growth numbers around the country. Right. Um, I had the chance to take the Maker's Mark role down to Austin, where I did do that for a couple of years, and then ended up uh, following in the footsteps of uh, Mr. Bernie Lubbers over at Heaven Hill, a dear friend and one of my gurus. And I know most people know Bernie. And if you don't know Bernie, the boots or the belt buckle. And so I followed, he, he recommended me on his way over to Heaven Hill to take over as the bourbon ambassador for Jim Beam. And it made sense with my background at Maker's Mark to cover Jim Beam and Maker's Mark. So a few years I went full portfolio for what we were doing at Beam, now Beam Centauri. And uh, so much travel at that point, it just made sense to, to move to a bigger market with a bigger airport to where I wasn't wasting, you know, almost a whole work days worth of hours flying to fly some flying somewhere to fly somewhere else. And that's what got me back to my hometown of Houston. And so it wasn't necessarily in the cards to be back where it all started here. But, um, you know, I, I've always been a proud Houstonian and I've been back for eight years and I've been able to rediscover my city, especially, you know, for the last 16 months being, being stuck here longer than I've ever been. <laughs> Not, I don't mean stuck in a bad way, but being here in Houston longer than I've been anywhere for the last 20 something years of my life. Um, it's been, it's been great to rediscover the city that I grew up in and see places that I've never known and, and get to see some little bars and little pockets of town that I've never explored before. So it's, it's been a good time because we, because we've been open a little bit longer down here in Texas. So when I say exploring bars, I mean, doing so according to local regulations and of course, safely. Yeah. Yeah. With the mask and all that yeah. good stuff. Yeah. Um, when you started off in the industry, Adam, and really when you got that bug for bourbon, you know, and, and got to be part of that explosion, which I think is very, it's such, so exciting, right. Yeah. To have been like on the ground floor of that, when that was happening and not like after the fact, when now it's such a huge category, Yeah. what were some of the surprises that you saw early on? Ah, uh, you know, I think, just the, and I don't mean this disparagingly to the population at large, but just the, the lack of understanding, you know, just to think that if you know one whiskey, you know, all whiskey. And if you know bourbon, then, you know, whiskey. And if you know, Jack Daniels, then, you know, bourbon. And if you know, Scotch whiskey, then, you know, Irish whiskey. And if you know, Irish whiskey, then, you know, Canadian. And, and, and just to not really know like what the difference was and to, you know, and I, and I mean that quite, quite literally, I've, I've stepped into so many bars in my early career and had to tell people that, you know, that very particular popular brand of Tennessee whiskey is not bourbon and, and many times vice versa. Right. And so um, that was actually one of the reasons why I wanted to move to Texas is because there was a lot of wood to chop on some, on some very popular Canadian whiskey down these parts. And then some very popular Tennessee whiskey down these parts that people just kind of drank with the assumption that it was bourbon and with the same uh, uh, vigor that, that we were talking about bourbon in my previous location. So moving back home to help spread the good word was a big, a big deal. But, um, you know, I think just the, and you can attest to this too, I think being in an in, in position of education, we've all seen how our, our audience has, has caught up to us in a lot of ways and, and where we were when we started 10, 15 years ago, when we were talking about brands or talking about cocktails, talking about hospitality, all those sort of things. And nowadays, I think that there was a time I, I, I realized maybe about five, six years ago that behind you know bartenders knowledge is increasing then the your your consumers average knowledge has increased now and that and that's kind of helped to push some of us again yourself included to to better ourselves and to learn more and to get a little bit 
better at what we do. So you always kind of got to stay ahead of the game. And as soon as that game starts to catch up to you a little bit, you need to start playing harder, right? I agree. I agree. And I love what you just said too, Adam, about the different categories and really the misunderstanding, right? Um, And I think for our listeners that might be new to the category of bourbon, would you mind giving just a very quick explanation of the differences between those categories? Well, absolutely. It's how Thanks. I, it's where I butter my bread. All right. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, we'll talk, you know, exclusively about bourbon first. Uh, well, well, can't talk about bourbon without talking about whiskey. And I always say whiskey is a, is a worldwide spirit. And it's like an umbrella that covers the globe, but it's a broken umbrella because everything under it's wet. Right. But you can make whiskey anywhere. And the, the, widely accepted definition of whiskey loosely is that it is a grain distillate that spends some time aging. And when you look at what that means, it, it means that you can be as primitive as you want, and you could also be as, um, as, as sophisticated as you want. You see that throughout our history. And you see that today with what might happen in the back hills or in the jungles or forests in certain countries. And then what happens in your you know, distilleries in Kentucky, like we have in Claremont at the James B. Beam Distilling Company. So you have all these different levels. And then you look at all those different categories that fall under that. And we spoke about some of the large, the, the larger, more commonly known ones uh, earlier, but then you have your Japanese whiskey, the major category that it is now, obviously, and the popularity there and Taiwanese whiskey and whiskey, Tasmanian whiskey and whiskey popping up from all over the world. And then the smaller distilleries here in the U.S. that keep pushing boundaries too, as far as what we define as American whiskey or American single malts and what can fall underneath those categories. And then even some of the, the fun experiments that go on with some of the smaller bourbon producers or even whiskey producers that aren't exclusive to bourbon, but produce a little bourbon as part of their portfolio. But when you speak about bourbon specifically, you know, of course it has to be American made. Uh, one of the common misconceptions even today, uh, going back to your earlier question, is that bourbon has to be made in Kentucky. And even though bourbon truly has its roots and its, its home is in Kentucky, in Bourbon County, um, in Bourbon Country, um, you can make it anywhere in the U.S. It's uh, a byproduct of really uh, prohibition because during prohibition, one of the things that happened was a lot of bourbon makers either headed south to Mexico and, and there was a Beam family member that headed down south to Mexico and made a little whiskey there. And then actually some bourbon makers headed north to Canada. And this was something that we noticed was not going to be good for business here in the U.S. if we allowed people to make that whiskey outside of its borders. So one of the reasons why we passed the standards of identity that, that claimed bourbon as a uniquely American product back in 1964 was because we saw during that prohibition time our native spirit or, or something that was native to us uh, began to slip up outside of our borders. So we wanted to make sure we circled the wagons in the U.S. And uh, Kentucky still remains responsible for about 95, 96% of all the bourbon we create in the United States. Um, but a lot of people think it's, you know, American made for, for, for some of those reasons is because for just a moment there during prohibition, it wasn't made exclusively in America. And so that's, that's a misconception that I still hear today that has to be made in Kentucky. And yes, Kentucky is a great homeland for bourbon because we have an awesome environment for making Kentucky with four full seasons, including a, a really cold, you know, Chicago-esque winter and a Southern summer. And then We've got the access to resource there, which of course is that limestone filtered water and the American oak that we use for our barrels and the corn, because as we start talking about more standards of identity, you have bourbon has to be at least 51% corn. And if we were going to talk about an, another very popular style of American whiskey called rye, uh, then we would have to be at least 51% rye with the rest of the rules falling suit the way that I'll kind of explain them. 
we have to age our bourbon in a new unused charred oak barrel, the lost state's container. But as I like to joke around, it's a lot easier to move whiskey around in a bourbon barrel than it is in a bucket, right? A lot less sloshing around. So uh, we use that barrel one time because we take about 75% of that bourbon barrel's coloring and flavoring potential away with that first virgin initial use. And so no matter what we did to that barrel, we could never get those flavors back. That would give us what we are looking for. And then um, we can't distill the whiskey any higher than 160 proof, even though global regulations, so here's a, here's a big difference between us and global whiskey regulations is uh, they can go up to 190. We can only go up to 160 and then off the still that is. And then when you're talking about going into a barrel for filling, we can't fill above 125. We can't go into a bottle any lower than 80 proof. Um, and of course, uh, our number one bourbon in the world, Jim Beam is an 80 proof bourbon, a really great small batch bourbon that we make at the distillery, Basil Hayden, that's 80 proof. And then last but not least, and this is kind of the fork in the road, whether you're going to stay above the state line or south of the state line between Kentucky and Tennessee, is that you can't uh, add or subtract any flavors or colors to the distillate before it goes into a barrel for aging, meaning that uh, the only thing we can add to the whiskey before it goes into the bourbon barrel is water if we need to proof it down to 125. Down south, if you want to, you can follow the Lincoln County process and filter that whis whiskey through maple charcoal. It's painstaking and it's drop by drop and it's, it's uh, you know, no small feat to get that accomplished at the rate at which they make some of the, the volumes of those whiskeys there. It's, it's not better or worse. It's just what's different. So we don't add or subtract flavors other than water. And then if we wanted to create a flavored bourbon like we do with some of our gym beams and we could add those natural flavors after maturation as well as some water for bottling. But um, in a nutshell, that's, that's what makes bourbon unique uh, in the world of whiskey with a couple of different comparisons or shout outs to other whiskeys specifically. Well, I appreciate you explaining that. I mean, obviously you and I understand that, but I think a lot of people are still getting kind of hip to the category yeah. and the, and the differences, you know, um, between each. And so I think that that's super helpful. You know, what did you go to college for Adam? I graduated with an environmental studies degree from the University of Kansas. I thought I was going to be either a, a landscape architect or go to law school and be an environmental lawyer. Because wow. I, I like arguing and I like being right as much as anybody, maybe a little bit mm -hmm. more. But um, I, uh, I just I kind of got tired of school by that point. And I was ready to go off and do something more, a little more uh, free. Yeah, uh, no, I, I get it. I went to college for like two minutes to UNLV and I got a certain, <laughs> well, I should say for two minutes for two years, but I did get a, um, a certificate in equine and canine physical therapy. And so I worked on horses and dogs. That's awesome. Um, and that's a podcast for another day. Oops. I know, <laughs> but I'm just, I'm just curious because you mentioned college earlier mm -hmm. and something that you said really resonated because the, the path that you started with, you know, through school and then working behind the bar and then being a brand ambassador, I think is an important um, journey for people to understand, especially in today's age, as we come out of COVID and, you know, folks are really looking to see, you know, what's next. Yeah. You know, what jobs are next? Because I can tell you something, Adam, and I think you would agree when we both started out, there was the term brand ambassador didn't exist. Not really. Mixologists didn't really exist. Well, okay, I'm dating myself because it didn't yeah. exist. Yeah. <laughs> Mixologists didn't exist yet. You know, it's like you were a bartender, you're a bar owner, a hostess, maybe a server. But all these other bells and whistles now that are available for careers, you know, they just really didn't exist. And yeah. so you know, with that said, and you've been in your career for such a long time, which is amazing. 
you know, and especially in today's day and age where people kind of move around the right every time. five seconds. Yeah. When the axe swings, I duck at the right time. You duck that's at really the right time. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, <laughs> I feel you on that. I really do. Um, but with that said, you know, what are you what are you seeing? Because you you have been in the industry for a long time and you have seen things change. Um, what do you really see that opportunity for those who are kind of looking to make, and I'm not going to use a P word because I, I like it as much as I like the M word, which is moist. So, you know, where, what do you see that future looking like mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. our industry? Yeah. You mean from a, from like an advocacy perspective or yeah, from an advocacy perspective? Well, yeah. Yeah. Both because uh, we are really almost in a reset. I like to yeah. call it as far yeah. as reopening. And with that, we would hope to see some new opportunities, whether it be with cocktails to go or cocktails on tap and, yep. and, and within their careers as well. So really, I guess my question is, you know, what do you see the future looking like for hospitality and opportunities, um, you know, as we move into this hopefully new non COVID world? Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's a great question. And I know that we had been part of uh, multiple teams having conversations around those topics, you know, certainly for the last year or so. Um, and I guess what I'll say is that, you know, and you're right, when, when we were kind of finding our way through this business behind the bar on the other side of the bar, I think that um, I, di- I, I didn't know about brand ambassadors. I just knew about this guy that would come in and talk about this brand or this guy that would come in and talk about this brand and introduce a master distiller, you know, something, something to that extent. And so it wasn't something that, you know, job postings, you didn't go onto websites and see job postings for a brand ambassador work in the same way you do now. So it was kind of that thing where you were approached, but nowadays, uh, and, and it has been this way for some time now, I mean, now you see uh, a lot of, a lot of initiative from companies to, to bring people on board and advocacy teams and ambassador roles and build out entire advocacy teams across the portfolio and stuff like that. So I think those opportunities are out there and they're not going to go anywhere. Uh, but one thing that I do think we'll see, and I'll speak to, to ambassadorship uh, first, is I think that, you know, we have traditionally been storytellers, passionate storytellers, and people that really love bringing brands to life that have uh, a soulful connection to where their product comes from. You know, I'm, I'm from Texas, you know, and Sometimes I sound more like I'm from Texas than other times, but I, I, I'm a proud Texan, but I'm also, Kentucky is kind of my spiritual home. You know, I, lo- I love going to Kentucky. I haven't been to Kentucky since October of 2019 and I miss it so much, you know. Um, I miss walking through a warehouse more than I miss a lot of things. Um, I miss uh, being able to just kind of drive through the countryside on the way to the distillery and, and, and just sort of feel that peace and that connection to what we do and kind of understand how the environment creates what we make. And so there's this wonderful responsibility to be these storytellers and to talk about what we do and and represent the people that make it, not just the families and the figureheads, but also the people that go to work every day and make this whiskey, working with our figureheads and our distillers and blenders and things like that, the people that show up to whiskey fest and everybody wants to meet and all that stuff. There's, you know, hundred people behind them that make sure that the grain is good and make sure that the water quality is good. And and some of those people have generational positions too. Like we've got uh, distillery managers that, you know, uh, this guy, I want to say his name's Butch. It's either Butch or Gary. And I I can't remember exactly which one it is, but Butch or Gary's mom actually was a distillery operator for about 40 years before they took over. So, I mean, that's just so cool that we have that generational heritage, not just within eight generations of the no and beam family making the whiskey and being in charge, but also the people behind it, the scenes too. And, and 
that's been, in my opinion, my, my job to represent, to storytell, to talk, to help inspire, to, to make purchasing and using one of our whiskeys an attractive proposition between marketing and sales, right? And so that's kind of what I think is traditional. Now, I think too, with businesses needing more understanding coming from our side of things and more partnership coming from our side of things, I think that there's going to be a little bit of a shift and I could be wrong in this. There's going to be a little bit of a shift in, into ambassadorships and, and advocacy where it, it's going to be helpful if you have a bit of a, a commercial understanding. So have you come from being a buyer at a bar, you know, and not just the bartender or the head bartender, but do you know how to manage a program? Do you know poor costs? Do you know how to manage P and L's? Can you talk on that level with the bartender or the buyer to make sure that you're looking after their best interests and that they're having their best interests served. And so I think that's going to become very important, not more so than the storytelling, but it's going to be a really valuable additional tool in an ambassador's toolkit to really understand business. And then as you start to understand the business of the bar, you know, how do things like cocktails to go, how do innovative programs that can navigate a world where we're going to spend the next year or so with people either being, ready to go out and go crazy and be in the bars and restaurants? And how can we help to make those owners and operators and managers keep their staff feeling safe and happy? And what can we do to help that? And then also, how can we also give those places support and other avenues like cocktails to go, et cetera, that will help be revenue streams that in my opinion, I don't think should be going anywhere. I don't think that we should get rid of those programs just because this lockdown COVID lifestyle might be coming to some sort of a close in the near, in the near future here, but yeah. Yeah. God, I hope from your lips to God's ears. I mean, I really hope that we're at an end really soon here. Same. This girl is ready to get out of Shorewood <laughs> like as soon I've, as possible. <laughs> but, I've seen uh, you in that room too, uh, too long and too many times, Bridget. Too long. <laughs> this is where I live. <laughs> my, and my daughter has totally taken over my office. People, you can't see it, but her crap is all over the place. But anyways, <laughs> I, I want to also ask you about education mm -hmm. because I know that you're so well-versed in bourbon and you're able to give that education to your customers, to your friends, you know, to the trade, you know, et cetera. How important and how vital do you see education being a role within our industry? Because I can tell you just personally, my family, I have a nickname. They call me Bing like Chandler Bing from friends, because no one understands what Bridget does day to day. <laughs> and when I try to understand the importance of it, you know, really putting out that voice, the importance of education to support mm -hmm. the trade. Um, mm -hmm. It's a challenge. It yeah. is a huge challenge a lot of times um, in my personal circles, but I'm just curious uh, to hear it from you. And because you've been in the industry for such a long time, how important do you think that is to the trade? And do you think it will continue to be of importance? I think it's been incredibly important. And I think that a lot of the work that people with a certain tenure have done over the years across the industry, I mean, we've, I'm not going to say we've, I'm not going to overplay our importance, but I think we've done a good job of, of bringing up this generation of this, this younger generation of bartenders and operators that are just killing it. The people that I was talking about that caught up to our, our knowledge level, you know, and, and really helping to give a foundation of, of, of product knowledge to, to this generation. And I don't think that's going to go anywhere. And I think that we've done a, a great job of, of helping the industry be where it is today uh, through its people um, and of course the products. But right now, 
I don't think that education is that important. <laughs> right now, I think support is important. And I think getting out there and tipping, tipping as much as you can. And I agree. You know, maybe getting in trouble with your finance department for why was that, why was that tip over this? You know, it's because people need the help. People need mm -hmm. the support. You know, I think that education is certainly going to be important again. Um, and, and I, hell we could talk about how understaffed so many places are. I walked through the airport the other day mm -hmm. and a third of the were open maybe. Wow. You know? And I think some of it's obviously supply and demand with flights going on right now, but also I think that they're having a hard time just staffing folks. Yeah. And so eventually there's going to be a whole lot of bright eyed, bushy tailed ingenues that come into the mm -hmm. bar world that we're going to have to educate again. But right now I think, you know, and, and I've had conversations like this with some people we know, and I would feel bad walking in offering a staff training before I would walk in and just offer to buy the bar around, <laughs> you yeah, know? Yeah, no, so. I get it. I get it because so many people, I think that's what we, we should voice out, right? Yeah. Is that so many of our friends and so many people in the industry, they're just trying to survive right mm -hmm. now. Um, mm -hmm. Our industry was definitely hit amongst the hardest. And I've said this so many times on the podcast that unlike like the banking industry or the medical industry or the airlines that, that always have a plan and they're so united, you know, they're not just individual um, identities. They definitely are united yeah. that we were hit so hard during COVID without the support. So you're a hundred percent right that we need to be tipping well and having that sense of understanding as, as well, when you go into a place and having that patience because they are understaffed and that really sucks. Yeah. No, I think that you know? we, uh, we're in the hospitality business as much as anybody else is right. You and I, mm -hmm. people of our ilk. And so we understand manners. When you go out, we understand reading the room. We understand reading, reading the, the, the one to four or five people behind the bar and making and kind of knowing where their mind's at or how they're feeling just by their body language and how they approach other mm -hmm. guests. And I think that that understanding comes part and parcel with, with who we are. But, uh, you know, I think I, if, people are listening out there that, that don't live in this world. Um, I would encourage you to do what Bridget just said and just take a little extra time and have a little extra patience and enjoy that drink that you're having because you're not drinking it in your house. <laughs> Someone made it for you <laughs> and you should just not be slamming that thing down. Just enjoy it and savor it, you know, and hopefully maybe that's a knob Creek, but uh, it's um, yes. I mean, I think it's just, we, we have to read that room. We have to give everybody that space to kind of come into this world uh, again, you know, I think one of the mm -hmm. things that I was talking about and with some other, with some other folks, um, like Robin Nance, we were talking mm -hmm. a few months back, just, uh, talk about re-entry and the, the mind F that re-entry is going to be for some people, you know, what are you comfortable with? Where are you comfortable? What do you want to do? Maybe you've really enjoyed being not trapped in your house, but not traveling so much, you know? And so mm -hmm. do you get anxieties about the idea that you're going to have to be on the road 75, 80% of your life again? you know, all those sort of things too. So it's not, if I was, if I was president, I do a lot of things, but one of the things that I would do is we kind of get out of this. Um, and again, hopefully get out of this. I say, you know, I'd, I'd say, all right, before everybody goes back, let's just take a week. You can go on vacation if you want. You can, or no, we're not going to go on vacation because everybody's just going to take a nap. Oh, just take a nap. Oh, that's a, a grand idea. Yes. Then we're going to get back to it. Right. Mm -hmm. Cause we'll be rested and we'll be ready. And we'll be able to kind of process everything instead of just trying to figure out a little bit at a time day by day. And, you know, sometimes not giving yourself the mindfulness or 
or moment to, to absorb how you feel about what's going on. And, you know, instead of rushing back with, with vim and vigor, maybe taking the time to do it in a way that you're going to set yourself up for, for long-term longevity and success before you burn yourself out one way or the other. Right. What are some of the things that you're currently doing to have that mindset? Mm. One thing that I've really leaned into for all these months here has been, uh, exercising. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been jogging myself, uh, mm-hmm. quite a bit for the better part of two years. I'd say I've been a, a dedicated jogger slash runner, whatever you want to be. I'm more of a jogger now than a runner. And I'll explain that, I guess, a little mm-hmm. bit later if, if I, if I can lead the conversation that direction. Of course. Uh, but, uh, also I've been seeing a therapist for the, for the last 14, 15 months, and mm-hmm. it's just been a great way to find support. And it's been a great way to talk about, you know, I think that, uh, one of the things that I miss the most about the way the world's been is just shooting the shit and downloading with a coworker at a bar or a mm-hmm. good friend or a colleague uh, after an event or after a day of account calls or after a day of trainings or after a night of a dinner. And just having that time, that hour, two hours, a drink or two or three to, to download the day and to just shoot the shit. I love mm-hmm. shooting the shit Me <laughs> and too. talking shop. And that has just not been a part of what my life's been. Mm-hmm. Um, for so long. And so going to a therapist for the first time has, has been nice to have. It's, it's a different type of outlet because we're not sitting there with cocktails in our hands, but it's been right. nice to just sort of have the opportunity to have those, those style talks. And, and that way you, you're make sure to give your friends their space, you know, cause right, you're not right. in that, in that for in that force situation or that situation we all like being in at the bar after the day. But, um, that's been something else. And then just trying to trying to find peace of mind. I know mindfulness is a, is a big word. Um, it's, it's a huge word for me because it's so hard to do, you know, just quiet mm-hmm. your mind, just stop thinking about, you know, what's, what's going to happen. And I, I love the phrase, don't borrow worry. Right. Oh, don't borrow I love trouble, that. You know? I do that I, all the time. We always do that. I, I, I <laughs> We do at least. I don't know if everybody does, but do that God every bless damn you day. Yeah. Every day, just thinking about Man, what I love what's that phrase. Five days from now, if I make yes. this choice here, you know, and instead of just taking the time to be in the moment, and uh, that's something that I've definitely been working on again to various degrees of success. Not always working, but sometimes I'll I'll realize that I'm able to just sort of feel my feet on the ground, know that mm-hmm. I'm part of the earth, and the earth is mine, and it's just a, it's just those moments of realization feel very, very good. And, uh, I wish that I could string more together. Um, but it, it is helpful for, um, for trying to be, it is a, it is a, a nice realization that it can happen. Right. Even if not all the time. Absolutely. And I thank you for sharing that because I think that especially in our industry, Adam, that not everybody would, not everybody seeks um, to calm their mind, yeah. to take care of themselves first. Right. I know mm-hmm. I fail at that often, especially when things get crazy, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think it's really important to talk about and to be yeah. very open about because it could inspire others to say, you know what, if he can do it, I can do it too. We like to help. We're all right? helpers. We we're all have, helpers to we our, all like own to roll up our sleeves and say yeah. no to so little that, mm-hmm. you know, you have to say yes to yourself. And if part of that yes includes asking somebody for help that a pat on the back and a shoulder to lean on isn't going to provide, uh, then, you know, if you have the means, do it. I can't, do I couldn't it. recommend it enough. And if you don't have the means, then, then try to find a way to, to accomplish those means. Cause it's not always as daunting as you might think it is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I agree. I think that our industry, no matter what level you're at, no matter, 
where you are at, whether you're in the back of the house, the front of the house, work for a distributor, work for a supplier. Um, it's aggressive, Yeah, you know, yeah. and um, the more time you put in, the more time is wanted. Yeah. You know, there's just never enough. It's never enough. And, and not enough is celebrated either. When there's a big accomplishment, I don't feel like a, a lot of that is even celebrated. Because it and just rolls with the day into the next just day. just goes into the next day. Yeah. So it's like, oh, cool. You did that. Now what? You yeah. know, and that can wear on you when you're working super hard. And, and I do think exercise is really important. And I want you to mention the jogging club, which I need to get my butt out there and start jogging again. <laughs> but if you could maybe mention a little bit about what's happening with Knob Creek and that jogging club, because that is really given um, people a, a nice silver lining in such a crappy time, right? Yeah. A, a reason to get out in nature, a reason to put, like you said, like, you know, your feet in the ground. So, yeah. It's um, thanks for giving me the time to talk about it too. Cause it's mm-hmm. something that I've, that's been taking up a lot of my time and, and a part of my day almost every day back in, back in the summer of last year, uh, I I'm part of a, a team of American whiskey ambassadors for the Jim Beam distillery. And we had a, a, an old colleague who's gone on to do some awesome stuff with another round, another rally, a, an organization that she helped found her name's Amanda Gunderson. What's up Gundo. If you listen to this. Hey, she's been a guest here on Surf. She has been a guest. That's she right. has That's been a right. guest. Yes. So at least we know she's following. And then uh, Tim Heisler out east and Beth Burroughs, who's in Kentucky. Uh, we make up our little foursome and we're, we're now looking for somebody on the West Coast. If anybody feels like applying, you know where to see it. Uh, we wanted to do something. Traditionally, Knob Creek has, has done some great things within our trade community. You know, we've been big supporters of the Speed Rack uh, competition for a handful of years. We've been doing a fun thing with them. Uh, with the regional winners and the overall winner at the end of the year, every year called uh, Ryan Relaxation, where we take them up to Camp Wandawaga and we have a, a weekend emerged, immersed in not all things Knob Creek and all things Rye. And we just sort of do a deep educational experiential thing with them. And we were really feeling uh, our, a void in ourselves with 2020 when we weren't able to do Speed Rack and we weren't able to do some of the things that we had hoped for with uh, how we were going to announce the nine year going back on Knob Creek and the further uh, age extensions and stuff like that, that we would have done. We were going to do a big come as you were party at um, uh, bartenders weekend in San Diego that got scratched as everything else started to cancel, you know, throughout that crazy two month period last year of March and April, when things started really shutting down and we realized what was happening. So we knew that we were feeling a, a void in our community in the way that we were t- there showing up for bartenders with Knob Creek. And we were feeling like, some of the feedback that we've been hearing through private conversations with bartenders was that, you know, they're missing going to work, of course, and they're missing the opportunities to kind of be social. And if your work is social and your downloading is social or your downtime is social, then you're, you're totally lack of community. And some people don't really like popping on Zooms and some people don't like being on the phone all the time to make those connections. So there was a certain amount of loneliness out there and we wanted to bring people together. And so we thought a great way to do that would kind of be leaning into that idea that everybody can move a little bit, right? Not everybody is a runner, but everybody can walk and pretty much everybody can jog. And we wanted to encourage people to get together. And we thought we would try and pull this off in the summertime. Unfortunately, it kind of got delayed a little bit. And so in February, we were able to launch the Knob Creek's Joggers Club this year. And, um, I think it still has a, a, a lot of relevance to helping people kind of clear their minds and, and getting out and moving, not just only for the peace of mind and, and, and mindfulness that, could, that it can provide, but also because as we are starting to get back into uh, the world, you know, I mean, we talked about it earlier, like being 45 and barton and hurting the knees, you know, and our bodies are, and we work out behind a bar. You work out, right? For hours oh and hours and hours. 100%. 
So going yep. from zero to 110 for 18 hours, you know, 12 to 18 hours a day, that's going to put a lot of stress on yourself. And so what we wanted mm-hmm. to do was kind of give every, some folks an opportunity to, you know, kind of slowly get in shape, slowly get their conditioning back to where you can, you know, really be able to, to weather the storm on those big long shifts and, and not go home feeling like a, a broken bag of bones, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, the Knob Creek Joggers Club is a 12-week program that we started and uh, we got the teams together in February and then we launched in March. So we've been going for a couple of months now, or a few months now, and uh, 12 weeks finishing up. So we're at the turn right now with our sixth week and it's just a way we've, we've, we've brought on a, an amazing uh, jogging coach, uh, consultant who gives everybody a training program and gets to know each everybody's individual style, a gentleman named Chris Heisler. So uh, shout out to C- Coach Chris. And he's done a great job of kind of being our, our North star and our guide for this. And then Tim and myself and Beth and a gentleman named Mark, who's filling in for Amanda over on the West coast, we kind of serve as the individual team leads that kind of uh, get together, get everybody together once a week. We, we talk about our experiences. We talk about some of the challenges. We talk about the wins. We talk about just progress and, or the lack thereof, you know, and, it, mm-hmm. and it's all met with the same amount of, enthusiasm and support. And it's just a way for us to kind of build community as much as we're trying to build up the, the individual jogger bartender, we're trying to also build a, a community here. And we've got about a hundred bartenders coast to coast and one in Canada that are uh, jogging with us every day. And we got yourself on board and a couple of our partners and internal colleagues that are also doing some jogging. And we hope that it, we hope it's doing what, it, what it's intended to do, which is just getting out there, moving, feeling good and getting ready for, for the real world again. I agree. I think that he just mentioned something I didn't even think about. Like if you hadn't bartended in a whole year, Adam, yeah, and then you're put behind a bar and it's swamped. Oh my God. Like, no, thank you. I think I can, that I would, it would no, hurt. It would be would, painful. <laughs> it's like going, it's like thinking you can play basketball like you used to when you were 20. And one day you decide you're going to go play some pickup basketball, right? Just coming from nowhere. And I've been, I haven't played basketball in 20 years, probably. And if I just decided I'm going to go out in the court and run around with a bunch of young guys, I would be just. Yeah. <laughs> it's not, it's not like riding a bike. No, you know? it's no. not. It's so physical with a lot, with not many breaks. Carrying you know? cases, carrying ice, yeah. buckets, carrying, changing kegs, you know, the, the tennis elbow situation, learning your, relearning your posture, you know, getting those shoes, right. All that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. little mm-hmm. trick for everybody out there that, um, that we've discussed in our jogging club is, uh, make sure that you're not, make sure you have your work shoes and make sure you have your workout shoes and make sure you have your leisure shoes. Shouldn't mm-hmm. have one shoe for all those purposes. So your feet will thank great you. Great tip. Yeah. yeah. Is there any brand of, um, of shoe that you like that you kind of depend on? Um, for running or for jogging, I, mm-hmm. I really like Hoka, H-O-K-A. I'm really mm-hmm. a big fan of them right now. Um, enjoy the the support that they offer as well as quite a bit of, they, they have a range of supports and cushionings that they offer out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, for, I, I tend to wear moccasins or work boots when I'm out in the world, kind of just yeah. doing my thing. So, yeah. Yeah. I was just curious because it is really, it's so key. I remember in my days behind the bar, I wore like nurse's shoes. They were mm-hmm. so ugly. I was finally like, ugliest black shoes they were <laughs> chunky and not cute but they gave i am not tall so they also gave yeah. me a little bit of height so i could reach stuff but my feet were never tired 
And I think that that's, that's important, you know, you to right keep you feeling shoes. good. I had the, I always had the right pair of shoes. I, I, I would love to talk with you a bit about menus mm-hmm. and about bourbon, mm-hmm. um, because, you know, having you on today is really exciting because you are an expert on the topic. And so, you know, I don't like the, the question so much of trends, but I'm more likely to know from you, you know, what are some of the cocktails that you love to see on menus when you go to bars and what were some of the surprises that you've mm. seen, um, with bourbon as far as cocktails go? Ooh, uh, that's a great question. I love to drink bourbon on the rocks. That's kind of what I'll go in and drink. But with cocktails, I love to be reminded how great an old fashioned can be and how great a Manhattan can be. And I don't order them all the time, but every once in a while, you know, you're in a nice cocktail bar or in a bar where you notice the bartender knows what they're doing. And you just order one of those drinks with your preferred whiskey. And it's just a revelation. It, it, it's there are those there are those drinks that take you back to that moment of inspiration that made you want to be a fancy cocktail bartender. Right. And I think for, uh, for a lot of folks that, that like bourbon and, and like cocktails, I think that those two serve as a pretty good vehicle of nostalgia for what brought you back to of what, what you like about that drink. Um, that all being said, between the two of us, we've probably drank a pool's worth of brown, boozy and stirred cocktails. I like to see bourbon used in fun applications. I like to see tiki style drinks with bourbon. I like to see frozen drinks with bourbon. Um, one of my favorite drinks that I like to make, if I do a little guest shift or pop up here and there is I like to do a a riff on a lion's tail called a pony's tail because of obviously a horse and the relation back to Kentucky and the ponies there. And, uh, I like to do pretty much a lion's tail recipe, but I like to add orgeat and I like to do it frozen and then do, um, a nice little, uh, floater of allspice dram on top with some nutmeg. Bourbon's so, I, so delicious frozen. I just want to say that. So good frozen. It's not <laughs> so frozen good. enough. Yeah, it's not frozen enough. And I've really enjoyed seeing what people do with some of our flavors. Uh, I've, I think it's kind of cool the other day to hear somebody talking about using Jim Beam orange instead of triple sec in a margarita. And I was just, and that was just, I just huh. happened to overhear that at a bar. And I was like, huh. that's pretty interesting, you know? And mm-hmm. I think that if you wanted to get a little more bang for your buck in your cocktail and add a little higher proof uh, orange flavoring instead of just a triple sec or other liqueur. I think, it, I think that's kind of, it's not such a bad idea. And I like seeing how the flavors show up in frozen since we both have a love for that. And, mm-hmm. you know, and I love seeing how highballs are starting to expand. Yeah. I think that, you know, I, I, I am a little worried that I'm starting to see over overly complicated highballs out there with different flavors and garnishes and maybe like we're starting to get into that three ingredient cocktail now. And I'm like, it's not a three ingredient, cocktail. <laughs> you know, keep it two, but I'm kind of, I, I do like that. You're making a long drink at this time. Mm-hmm. That was inspired by a highball, but now we're starting to get into that Collins territory and, mm-hmm. and those just aren't the same thing. But, um, you know, I, what are you seeing out there? What have you, what was the last time you were like, damn, that's a really cool bourbon drink. Or I hadn't thought of that. Well, I love that you mentioned, um, frozen bourbon and for the fact that I haven't really left my hometown in a year and a half, I'm not good reference. <laughs> However, I do love to sit on my back patio and I love to, you know, in the summertime and I love nothing more than having a frozen drink in my hand. And so, and I also love Arnold Palmer's I'm basic. I'm not going to kid you. Like I am when I'm not drinking, you know, if I'm like for lunch or something, if I'm out, I usually order an Arnold Palmer because I love fresh lemonade and I love iced tea. And when you freeze that with bourbon, it is freaking delicious. 
with a fresh lemon delicious. on the top. And it's just so simple, but it's, it's tasty. So, yeah. you know, I'm all for the one, two, three steps as well in a cocktail and not keeping it overcomplicated. Um, I never thought about it, but you could, you could do a quick little infusion of, of a tea of your choice into your bourbon. And then you wouldn't even have to have the iced tea. You just have more you, bourbon, a little lemonade. <laughs> that would be so good. <laughs> that, <laughs> that would be that, good. That would be so great. But, you know, previously, I guess like pre COVID, I would see all kinds of things happening in the marketplace, you know, with bourbon. And I do feel like we're going to get to that time again, because we are so excited, right. To Mm -hmm. get back to work and to be behind the barn, to get creative again, that a lot of times um, with our creativity, we tend to go wild and kind of see what sticks, like really doing like some wild stuff. And then out of that, let's kind of see what, what is um, (laughs) realistic, right. To be using behind the the bar, um, kind of like how we were in the beginning of the mixology craze. Mm-hmm. There's going right? to be, I think there's going to be a, a boom of like, uh, uh, here, let me ask you this. I, I have a theory that we might, I, I'm not, I'm not hundred percent sold on it, but I have a theory that we might be entering our own type of roaring twenties, uh, yes. coming up here as we've come out of this year. What do you think? I hope so. That would be pretty yes. awesome. I, could, yeah. I could take a party for about three years. Me too. I I do think so because we've been so cooped up and it is really strange. Like you said, you know, going out into the world and it can be a little bit scary, you know, but I think once you're in there and you've got that drink in your hand and the music's right, why not? Two, three Jim Beam black highballs. You'll be, you'll be, you'll be feeling pretty social afterwards. Pretty social (laughs) after that. Yeah, Yeah, no doubt. Um, What about for people that really want to experience the bourbon category. So I'm going to reference my aunt Beth, my aunt Beth, I'm very close with my aunt Beth is not a bourbon drinker, but she is a craft beer drinker. And my aunt Beth every single summer goes to the local liquor store and drinks one can of their entire craft beer selection each day for the whole summer. And then at, by the end, she she knows what she likes. And she has her own little collection. I don't recommend that to everyone, <laughs> but she is retired and that's her thing. So um, for those people that really want to um, explore the category without being um, afraid of maybe the cost mm-hmm. or um, which bottle to choose, do you have any tips for people that are really trying to build that collection at home? For sure. I think that's a great question because, you know, one of the things that, you know, bourbon has really kind of just gone into this different stratosphere over the last eight years, as far as what collecting and what hoarding has done to our ability to try whiskey by the drink in the on-premise, as opposed to like waiting in line to try and buy that whiskey by the bottle in the off-premise. And so, you know, let's, let's rewind 12 years ago, you and I, and we go to a bar in San Francisco and there's a fine chance that we could drink Booker's. We could drink an Elijah Craig single barrel cast strength. If we wanted, if we wanted to, we could drink a, any of the fancier whiskeys out there that, that just aren't available anymore that everybody hoards. And it, it's happening to some of our brands now too. But um, I think that it's, it's an unfortunate thing. So I know that when you are going to invest some money into a, into a bourbon, uh, it's still one of the best ways to do that is still just go into a bar and sampling it by the drink. Right. And so what I would recommend is uh, you never want to start too high in proof. You know, I think that some of my favorite bourbons, again, being a, a, a weathered and wizened drinker as I am, I think uh, only so wizened, more, most, mostly weathered, but uh, 
I would say that, you know, I, I enjoy Knob Creek. I, I think most mornings you could lick my arm and taste a little Knob Creek, but I think that, uh, you know, I like those bigger, bolder bourbons, but that's certainly not a, not the way that you gently welcome someone into the category. And luckily for us, we've got a, a really great portfolio of bourbon um, that can, can be a, a helpful hand that can get you on your trek up the mountain and then eventually have your hallelujah moment when you drink your bookers, you know, at cast strength, un, unfiltered, uncut. The, those, those bourbons are like Jim Beam Black Label, Jim Beam Double Oak. Um, Basil Hayden is a fantastic bourbon that, that really just, it's the only time I ever use the word elegant to describe one of our bourbons. And it truly has this full flavor, but light body and elegant spice that I think anybody that likes an, an aged product can appreciate. You know, if you like a Reposado tequila, I think you'll be able to find something in Basil Hayden. If you like uh, an aged rum, I think you'd be able to find something in Basil Hayden that you would that you can gravitate towards. If you enjoy a cognac or a brandy, I think that there's some notes in Basil Hayden that you can enjoy too. And then we innovate with that brand in some fun ways, playful ways with our dark rye, where we add a little bit of a port whis- port wine to the whiskey. So we add a little bit sweet to the spice, and it's really quite nice. It's almost like a it's almost kind of an RTD in a way because if you just pour that on the rocks and throw a little orange twist a grapefruit twist over it. You can enjoy it like a cocktail, but um, I think Basil Hayden is a great way to get into it too. And even though it's not, it, it's not a distillery that I necessarily represent as much anymore, but Maker's Mark, I mean, 90 proof weeded bourbon. It's got that wonderful, uh, slightly sweet flavor profile to it that plays really well in cocktails. I think that, you know, we're, we're very lucky at Beam Centauri to have the opportunity to welcome someone into their American whiskey journey and then kind of hold their hand all the way through. And then once they've tried them all and if we've done our job by showing them how to enjoy them or, or give them recommendations on what order to enjoy them or, or drink preparation, even if it's just try this one on, on the rocks as opposed to neat, you know, if we've done our job, then we let them kind of refine their, their palate on their own, you know? And so it's, it's a, it's super cool. And it's, we're incredibly fortunate to have, such an amazing portfolio like we have. We don't have to leave the yard to to bring some. <laughs> no, I agree. And I asked the question because I've never seen so many bourbon clubs pop up ever yeah. as I did this last year. So consumers are paying attention. Yep. And they do need, you know, a lot of folks need some direction on where to start and how to start because building a collection can be daunting and it can get expensive too. Yes. So it's good to kind of understand what you like. So you're making sure you purchase what you like. We have, we have, we are responsible. We are, I won't say fully responsible. We are not without responsibility for the monsters that we have created as far as mm-hmm. how this, uh, you know, gouging and stuff like that, that happens in a secondary market. We've, we've created, we've created quite a, quite a hullabaloo out there, you know, and I will, I will say that for the, the novice whiskey drinker or someone that's getting in the category, um, older certainly doesn't mean better and more expensive yes. certainly doesn't mean better. You can find awesome bourbon at 19 bucks um, and six years old, and you can find, you could find a 10-year-old bourbon that's somewhere around the 30-year-old price range if you wanted to. So it's about what you like. Drink what you like and drink it how you want to. Like Fred says, you know, drink it any damn way you want. But, just drink uh, it. <laughs> just drink it. Just, just enjoy it, it and have fun. Yeah. What do you say to those folks who are not bourbon drinkers and who are, you know, life um, long diehard, let's say like a vodka drinker and thinking mm. like, 
I can't try bourbon because it's going to taste too strong. It's going to burn my throat and all this other garbage. You know, how do you, how do you turn those folks onto um, this category? Well, let's be honest. Some are a lost cause. Yes. They just want to be contrarian. Right. But I I think that uh, one of the great master distillers that I got to know, uh, Dave Fickroll, rest in peace. He told me one day in my early career that we are animals humans. And we are genetically engineered to enjoy sweet, even though I'm going to say I don't, I don't eat desserts. Right. But every once in a while, if I start eating candy, I'm going to eat 50 pieces of candy. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just, it's just proof of calories and proof of energy. And so we gravitate towards sweet. Now bourbon, even though the flavors are big and some of them are bold and oaky, there's still a lot of sweetness in there with the brown sugar, the vanilla, the caramel that comes from the oak. Uh, those and the, and the fruit that comes from the, the flavor development during maturation, but those flavors lie in there. And so it's just a matter of finding what level of dilution those sweet flavors speak to your palate the most. And he sent me through a, a little experiment where we took, uh, this is my Maker's Mark days, where we took a, a, a glass of water, we took a glass of bourbon and a glass of water. And so we mm-hmm. started with 100% bourbon and then we kind of diluted it down to 90% and then tasted it. And it was a little bit sweeter, right? Because the dilution opened it up and we were able to kind of get into the alcohol or the bigger flavors sort of began to spread out some and the sweeter, smaller flavors were able to show up. And then we kind of ended up at, uh, kept going, going and going until we had tipped the scales. to like 10% alcohol or 10% bourbon and 90% water. And it was, it tasted like water, but it was sweet water. It wasn't mm. woody water. It wasn't oaky water. It wasn't spicy water. It was sweet water. And that was when I, I sort of, I truly appreciated the, the theory that everybody likes bourbon because we like sweet. And it's just a matter of finding the level of dilution that you like sweet. And it just so happened that there were two people sitting next to us that uh, had been kind of watching our experiment. One of them was a vodka drinker. And Dave is, Dave was charming. And Dave walked over there and he, you know, proceeded to give them, to show them the experiment and lead them through the experience. And, you know, he made a convert that night and He's Dave Pickerel. What can I say? So I don't, yeah, I don't, I, I don't always bat a thousand on, on making my, my converts from vodka drinkers or, or at least getting them to appreciate bourbon, but it does work sometimes. But like I said, sometimes you're just not gonna, you're not gonna win everyone. Over. No, no, you're not. But I did ask the question because a question that bartenders get nightly daily is uh-huh. you get that deer in the headlight look from your guests. And they're like, I don't know what I want. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. I just don't know. And you ask them like, well, what do you like to drink? I like vodka. And it's really hard to say then well, have a bourbon. Yes, <laughs> exactly. It's so different. So just having like a little trick or something to expand their horizons. And yeah. also, and that I think when you can create um, something new for a guest also, um, a lot of times that's how you re- you create um, a repeat customer. Mm-hmm. Well, that's right? how you get trust, right? And, right? and that's why I always talk about recommending those lower proof, like the Jim Beam Black, like the Basil mm-hmm. Hayden, like Maker's Mark, because there could be classes taught on how to get regulars, right? Mm-hmm. One of the ways you get regulars, and, and I think it's especially something that's valuable today, is that, you know, the way you get regulars is by building trust with those folks and getting to know them. And that's that's a very uh, trust-based relationship, how you get to know them, because you want them to come back to you. And if you're, if they say, I'm a vodka drinker, and, and I think that the great follow-up question to that is what kind of cocktail do you like to drink, right? Yeah. Because then you can start playing around with different cocktails. But if they're just like total deer in the headlights, like you mentioned, mm-hmm. you know, I would hope that you wouldn't recommend bakers at 107 proof to that, to that poor person. (laughs) Right. right? Cause that is going to sprout hair and curl hair, you know? So uh, we don't want that to happen. 
you want them to believe you when you say you need to try this. You want them to to bring their friend and say, this person knows what they're doing back mm-hmm. there. I like coming here to this person and I want you to come and enjoy this experience because they're the best at what they do. And just that thing. And hey, this goes back to our earlier conversation. I knew the guy drank a gin and tonic. I had a gin and tonic waiting for him when he showed up. That was my mm-hmm. first ever regular. And that was the beginning of a of a hell of a career, you know? And building up that regular basis is is done by trust and knowing what you're doing. And so a lot of times knowing what you're doing comes from having a mentor. It comes from having a good boss and it comes from schmucks like myself coming in and talking about spirits (laughs) time to time. Well, you just mentioned mentor, which is such a buzzword. So now we have to talk about it. Who are some of the mentors in your life? Um, I've had a few. Uh, I've had a few. Um, I'd say my hospitality mentor was my first boss and it was a gentleman named Michael Waterhouse. And he owned, he, he was a co-owner of Dylan Prime, which is the bar mm-hmm. I worked at. It's no longer there. So I think I can, I can mention it. Of course. Um, it's down in Tribeca. And that was really my bar home. Michael taught me about, he made my first real Manhattan for me. He really started to talk about premium spirits, fresh juices, proper techniques, stuff like that. And, and not just did he have a, a way with making drinks, but he just loved the bar. Mm-hmm. He loved bars. And I think about him as kind of my bar dad, you know, mm-hmm. and he was, uh, you know, a Christmas Carol, the, the story of Christmas Carol and how yeah. young Ebenezer Scrooge works for Fezziwig. And he's this mm-hmm. really happy, jovial guy that likes, that likes to have people enjoying themselves and always kind of making sure that everybody has their, their flagon of this and their stick of this and all that kind of stuff. And, and that's what Michael is. And that, and that's just kind of the person he has been throughout his time in the bars. And so I love the bar as the public house, right? Mm. And I love it as that place to gather. I love it as that place to kind of, as I've said a few times, download and unwind. And I remember when I lived in New York, as I mentioned for some time, and I lived there during 9-11. And I remember uh, when when that day happened, um, I was working for Michael and I called him the, on the 11th. And I was like, are you okay? He was like, yes, I'm okay. I was like, you know, we talked about how crazy everything was. And I said, are we going to be open tomorrow? And he said, he didn't, he didn't really miss a beat, but it was just a thoughtful moment. And he says, we have to be open tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense because mm-hmm. he ran a public house, you know, yeah. and we didn't have a TV, but on the 12th of September that year, we had a, a plug-in television with an antenna and we had the news on and people came in and we were, that was when I, I didn't just all of a sudden, I didn't just feel like a real, I didn't just feel like a New Yorker, but like I understood being a publican, being a bartender, being, you know, being all of the the history of what the bar is to the world was Mm -hmm. in that moment of like how important this is for people to have a place outside of their home to go and gather, you know, and I know that thousands of books have been written about it since then, but it's, it's just that place. And there's a great book called The Tender Bar. I don't know if you've ever Mm -hmm. read that book, Mm -hmm. that, that book makes me feel kind of emotional. You know, mm-hmm. because I didn't grow up in a bar like that. My parents weren't big drinkers or anything like that. And I can remember, you know, the the handful of times that I could count on a hand when my dad would pick me up from my, my parents would pick me up from my grandmother's and I'd fallen asleep on her couch and I could smell like a gin and tonic on my dad's breath, you know, mm-hmm. or something like that as I had my head on his shoulder and stuff. But there's just those little sensorial feelings that bring you back to your own experience in bars. I, I <laughs> Funny little trip down memory lane now. But yeah. this weekend in Sanibel Captiva, Florida, where the wedding was that I mentioned earlier, and this could very well end up on the, on the, on the, on the cutting floor. I don't know, <laughs> but I'm going to tell the story anyway. But I, we went to this place called the, the, bubble, the bubble Room, mm. and I had not been there in probably 
30 to 35 years. Wow. But I have always remembered this bar at this restaurant because I sat in a room with my parents at maybe 10 years old mm-hmm. and the waiter was like the coolest guy I'd ever met. And I was like, dang, waiters are like really, really cool people. And I kept looking into the other room, which was the bar. And at 10 years old, for better or worse, and this could really kind of be like the beginning of the infamy, <laughs> <the> infamy <laughs> or not, but I, that's when I realized like the bar is the best place to be in any place, in any restaurant, you know, because I just saw the smiles on people's faces. I mean, I love the show Cheers growing up, you know, I, mm-hmm. I watched that show religiously as a, as a child, just because the, the community and the camaraderie and the 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 love that the people had for the, each other in Cheers. I know it was written and created, but like that was what I thought I was looking at when I was looking at this bar at the Bubble House. And so going back there this past weekend, I was like, I told my friend, I was like, this is kind of where it all got started for me. Mm-hmm. You know, like, this is where I sort of know knew like that's where you want to be if you're going to be in this business is in the bar. And I guess that's I've amazing. Really kind of stepped in there and never left as soon as I could. That's super cool. Thank you so much too for sharing your moments that brought this industry to life for you. That got yeah. you excited about it. And that really, I don't even know the word for it. Just because I understand. I don't know that there is a word. I understand when you spoke about 9-11, I was bartending as well in Las Vegas. You know, I get it. You know, yeah. I was not in New York, but I was more or less on the other side of the bar, comforting a lot of people. And it, it really was a turning point for me as well. Like this is a hundred percent about human connection. Yeah. You felt like you knew your function. hundred percent about relationships. Yeah. And um, this is all I want to do and be part of. So yep. I, I understand it. I don't know the word for that, but it just like solidified the path, I guess. So I, I appreciate you sharing those stories and I can identify with them for sure. Yeah. They, they bring up a bunch of emotions, but they're, they're mm-hmm. part of the part of the experience, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Where do you see yourself in five years? Hopefully back on airplanes. Where, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, that's a great question. I'm, mm. I'm, I'm very happy where I am. I love, again, the connections and the connectivity that we have in this business. And I love the people that I get to see come up in it, whether it's on the bar and the, on the other side of it, in, in this, in this side of the world. Um, I've had the the pleasure of being able to kind of hire people and train people and bring them into the fold and mm-hmm. see, I, I love it when someone's better at this than I am, mm-hmm. you know, and, yeah. and, I, and I love to see where they, where their wings kind of take them, whether they decide to go and work directly for a brand or take on some different sort of role and, and grow their career, but just having mm-hmm. the opportunity to see the to see a spark that kind of reminds you of maybe yourself and some of your best times, you know? Mm-hmm. And being able to identify that and, and, and help shape it into a way where they can then, where people can kind of take it on their own mm-hmm. and, and, and be as great as they can be. I, I love that role. I'd love to, I'd love to hopefully get back into some of that someday, mm-hmm. um, whether that's managing or, or whatever. But, uh, you know, I'd, I'd love to say it's as simple as if it was a 20 year plan, I'd tell you it was going to be to retire and be the daytime bartender at a hotel somewhere because that's the retirement plan. All right. But, um, but I'm not ready to do <laughs> a that. A daytime yet. bartender. Hang oh, on. I wanna, to, I do a timeout. Wait, why daytime bartending? Because cutting fruit's just one of the best times. You can oh. just zen out. You can zen out on cutting <laughs> cool. fruit. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I don't mind doing that. I mean, I'm talking about being like 70 years old, right? Like, yeah, yeah. 70, working at a nice little hotel somewhere. Mm-hmm. You cut your fruit, you get your pars right, you make sure that everything looks nice, you make the bar yep. nice and pretty for the superstar young kids to come in and, 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 
mess it up every night, but I, you, you make a Manhattan every once in a while here and you make a margarita over there and you tell a joke here. I think, I mean, come on. If that doesn't that just sound kind of nice. No, it does. It does. Maybe I'll be your coworker in 20 <laughs> There we go. We'll do it never, together. You never know, yeah, Adam. You never, right. you never know. I'm glad, I'm glad I asked the question. Yeah. Um, well, before we close out, I did want to ask you one last thing. And that is if you could leave our listeners with some inspiring words for those who are just really trying to wrap their heads around the time that we're in, hoping to get back to work. And as you said, really jumping into that second roaring 20s. Mm. Well, it was a weird thing. In, in the early, in early lockdown, I don't know how this happened, but I got a phone call from an unknown number. And I don't usually answer unknown numbers, but for some reason, I answered this unknown number. And it was a pre-recorded message. And I can't say someone sent this to me on purpose. I can't say it was the power of the universe or whatever, but I was having a hard time. And uh, the pre-recorded message just goes, just remember, it's not a bad life. It's just a bad day. And then it just ended. And I was like, I don't know. I was dumbfounded and like just stood there in my, in where, I, where I stood. And, and I just absorbed that moment for a minute. And if you're having a hard time out there, just remember, it's not a bad life. It's just a bad day. And when we think about those roaring 20s, Lace up your dancing shoes. I and until love you lace up the dancing shoes, lace up some jogging shoes and grab some miles on the road. Ah, <laughs> I love it. Well, Adam, I want to thank you so much for being on Served Up. I do hope that you come back again. And I love being here. And as always, you know, I want to wish you so much just great health and a lot of peace. So thank you so much for being on the show. Thank Cheers. You. Thank Same you. to you. Cheers to you, Bridget. Thanks for listening. Served Up is brought to you by Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits. Produced by Zunu.online. Music by We Kill the Lion can be found on Spotify. Make sure to subscribe to be notified of future Served Up episodes. Cheers!